Good morning, everyone. It's always funny the first time you talk, you're not sure if the microphone's on. If you don't know me, my name is Jeremy Kuhn. I am one of the elders here. Um, I will secede the pulpit back to Paul next week, and uh, we look forward to that. If you would stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, I believe it's, yes, it's up on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I probably don't have to tell any of you that life is short. 21 years ago today, about 3,000 people realized how short life was when they were expecting to just go to work and an event happened that prevented them from finishing that day. On that day, they also faced the sober reality not only of the shortness of life, but that they will face a judgment. A judgment that is coming for all of us and a judgment that determines whether or not we will enter the kingdom of heaven or whether we will face destruction. The urgency of that reality uh, moved some people to create an evangelistic method called Two Ways to Live, which presents God as creator. It presents mankind as people who have rejected the, the rulership of God as created. They set themselves up as king. But also that God, in response, because of his love for his world that he created, sent Jesus, the son, to be the king, to rule for us. 
But that king died on a cross as a payment for sin. And that dead son, that dead king, was raised to life. Not just to rule, but to give new life to all who would believe in him. And that's the message of the two ways to live. It presents Jesus as a king who serves, but also as a king who saves. And at the end, it calls for a response. Will you be king for your own life? Or will you live with Jesus as your king? Jesus is coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he has come to the point where he is calling for a response. And by way of introduction, I I want to focus our attention at the end, verses 24 to 27, because this is really where all of it goes. Up to this point, Jesus has explained what it means to be his disciple. To be a disciple is to have a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees in relation to the law, in relation to personal piety, in relation to the things of this world, and our relationships to other people in this world. The greater righteousness really has to do with the heart of the matter. Where you are going is based on who you are serving. So when he comes to verse 24 here in Matthew 7, he uses the language of being wise and foolish. And the determining factor of whether or not you will be considered wise or whether you can be considered foolish is how you respond to his words that you have heard. Remember that Jesus, in the beginning of Matthew 5, went up on the mountain just like Moses. He went up on the mountain, but instead of receiving the law from God, he delivered the law as one who had authority. And Jesus makes remarkable claims in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records all these to present him as one to whom we must listen. He explicitly states, Jesus does, that blessing... And inheriting the kingdom is directly related to our identification with him. He says in, in Matthew 5 that blessed are you when people persecute you and revile you on, for righteousness' sake or on my account. Jesus also says that uh, he has definitively defined what the law is. He promises rewards from the Father that no one else would dare to claim. And now in the end, in verses 24 to 27, the focus is on your response to his words. And Jesus equates following his words to the words of his Father. And he says the one who hears and does his words is like a man who builds his house on the rock. That language of being on the rock was very important for his Jewish audience. There are many references in the Old Testament that refer to God as a rock. I want to share some of those with you to just give you the impact of how this passage relates to that idea. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God is seen here as a fortress, a a place of protection. Psalm 62, similarly, verses 1 and 2 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress 
I shall not be greatly shaken. Psalm 94 especially draws a distinction between one whose foot slips or is ready to slip, much like a house on the sand, which is ready to slough off down a cliff. Verses 17 and 18 says, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. And in verse 20 says, 22 he says, But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God, the rock of my refuge. In the face of death and destruction, God provides a secure foundation for those who hope and trust in him. And again, Psalm 40, verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. God is the rock. Jesus' words are the rock upon which we can have confidence for the day of eternity. By comparing the response of those who hear and do his words to those who build their house on the rock, Jesus is again saying that how you respond to him is how you would respond to God. Those who build on the rock and those who do Jesus' words will not fall. This is the response of the wise. This is the response of saving faith. Compared to that is the ruin of the house of the one who builds on the sand. This is the one who does not take Jesus seriously. He is doing right in his own eyes, living life as his own king. But his kingdom will not stand. Destruction is coming. Great is its fall. It has a complete collapse, and that collapse is into condemnation. So Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus has some very important advice for you. Advice that comes by way of a command, but it's still advice, because you must respond to it. And your response to Jesus Christ and his words is the determining factor of your eternal destiny. According to Jesus, the truth that you believe defines who you are. It reveals who you really are and how you worked out that belief. The problem is that we love to be our own king. We all love to satisfy our own desires. We all like to do life our own way and be the master of our own lives. So Jesus closes this sermon with the instruction that we need to hear to convince us of the goodness of following him as our king and as our savior. And since Christ alone is our salvation, we must exercise saving wisdom by following him, which is the main point for this morning. Since Christ alone is our salvation, we must exercise saving wisdom by following him. So Jesus presents three ways in this passage to exercise saving wisdom. First is we exercise saving wisdom by trusting in the exclusivity of Christ. Second, we exercise saving wisdom by avoiding false teachers. And third, we exercise saving wisdom by having a faith that works. So first, we exercise saving wisdom by trusting in the exclusivity of Christ. Verse 13 begins with the simple command, enter by the narrow gate. What is the gate that Jesus refers to? Well, much could be said about gates and walls, for referring to ancient cities and even the temple. But in the context of the Gospels, we can simply affirm the fact that the gate is the entrance into an area. 
And Jesus refers to two gates in verses 13 and 14. The narrow one leads to life, and the wide leads to destruction. Using a different word, but the same concept in in, uh, John's gospel, John 10, verse 7, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And in John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is referring to himself. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the narrow gate. But why is it narrow? Jesus has made it plain that he is the exclusive means to blessing. I'll say it again in Matthew 5.11. Jesus says, Blessed are you when the others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus puts his own authority on display when he teaches about the law, when he says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, He's affirming his authority. In the end, he tells his hearers that their eternity rests on their response to his words. How can he say this? How can Jesus say, it's all about me? Why is faith in him exclusive for eternal life? The reason is simple. Because he is God the Son incarnate, who was crucified and was raised. Our doctrine of God, and particularly the Trinity, makes this definition of the Son extremely important and why Jesus is the exclusive way of salvation. Jesus declares that he alone is Savior and there is none besides him. Because God is alone Savior and there is none besides him. God alone created the universe. Isaiah recounts in chapters 40 through 48 about the exclusivity of God's existence and rule and glory. These chapters expose the foolishness of idolatry of every kind because hope in false gods, hope in anything other than the creator God, is powerless to save. The Bible affirms that, the God, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is the only and eternally begotten of the Father, and he has existed eternally as the Son. In his essence, he is the eternal God. Jesus makes this clear in his own claims when he refers to himself as I am in John 8, 58, the meaning of which was not lost on his Jewish hearers. He is the same I am who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, that same I am who says, I am a God of steadfast love and mercy. We don't have time to flesh all of that out about the Trinity and everything that looks like But we affirm that here, that Jesus, the Father, Son, Spirit, they are part of a trinity of who our one God is. And in that, we reaffirm that Jesus is God. In addition to that, God gave a law to his people that not only reflects his demands to mankind, but also puts on display the holiness of his character. God's perfect standard of his own character and his perfect justice in applying it exposes us to the reality that who can live up to it? How can there be any hope for those of us who have sinned against him? Job asks a key question, how can man be just before God? And when Isaiah sees God seated on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, woe is me, 
That's the only response he can give because he is a man of unclean lips. So if there is none that does good, not even one, if no man living can be justified in his sight, how can there be any hope from the universal verdict that the soul that sins must die? Well, the consistent message is to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord, his covenant mercy and a mercy that we know has come to us in Christ. And why Jesus Christ? Again, because he is the son and he is also a man. He was fully human in every way. The eternal son, the eternal word, the one who existed from all eternity, entered time and space and took on flesh. He became the new Adam who was born of a virgin as a new representative for humanity, for those specifically that would put their hope in him. He lived in perfect righteousness, completely obeying his father in heaven, but he didn't just come to show us how to live. He came to die. He was sent by the father for this very purpose. And at the cross, Jesus took the penalty due to all humanity. He hung there suffering the wrath of God against sin that was due to each one of us. And he did so in the place of everyone who does hope in him. He is our substitute. And then he was raised from the dead to show that God's acceptance of his sacrifice was a full and final acceptance that paved the way for salvation for everyone who would go and follow him. And this was God's act of grace towards us. And just as a side note, I want to make sure that we understand what grace is. Sometimes we confuse grace with some sentimental kindness on God's part that overlooks sin. But in reality, God's grace is a violent and bloody reaction to our sin that removes his wrath from us. Because it's violent and bloody because it led to the crucifixion of his son. So when we think of God's grace, we need to think about everything that God did in order to bring us back into communion with him. And since Jesus, the crucified and risen son, is the object of our saving faith, it is not a universal salvation, but one that is tied directly to faith in him. As a result, he is our only hope for salvation. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles declare that Jesus was was crucified and was raised from the dead. And because of this, they say in verse 412, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. This is why faith in him is the only way of salvation. This is why the gate is narrow. Because it is only through him that we can enter the path of righteousness. It is only by God's saving grace through our faith in Christ that we enter. So next he speaks of the way that follows each gate. The language of a way or a path is very common used to speak of a way of life, especially in wisdom literature. Psalm 1 is a great example where the psalmist starts out saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, he comes to a close, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked will perish. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 
In the context of the sermon, when Jesus is talking about the way, he is talking about the life of discipleship. Every single person on this planet is a disciple. But whether or not they're a disciple of Jesus is who they're following. All of us follow something or someone. We are all disciples of somebody. The narrow path, or the wide path, excuse me, the easy path is being a disciple of the world. It follows the world's ways, the world's morals, the world's values. It is to be of the world and to live in the world and to love the world. And it's easy because it does not challenge you where you're at. It does not risk shame or persecution by upholding the exclusivity of Christ or his moral demands. There are many who enter it. The way of the masses is not the sign that it is right because it leads to destruction, straight to condemnation. Paul writes of those who follow this way in Philippians 3.19. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The narrow gate is the hard way, but it leads to life. The hard path is being a disciple of Christ. And why is it hard? It's hard because we're called to die to ourselves every day. Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross daily and follow him. And what he means by this is that we need to be ready to be shamed by the world for following him. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 4, he says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With, res- with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. To walk the narrow, or the narrow path, the hard path, is to follow Jesus in this way, to live a life of righteousness and to live a life of allegiance, because it faces persecution. It's to exercise faith and patience as we live righteously, not for immediate gratification, but waiting for an eternal reward from our Father in heaven. It's hard because we don't see results now. We have to be patient. We have to trust. But it is to trust in him that we have really what is the good life, whether we have plenty or want, whether we are being provided by our Father in the way that we think is right, we know that God is good to us. And we also know that this hard way is not an impossible way. First John 3, 5, verses 3 through 5 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes our, the world, our faith. Not just a random faith, but a faith in the one Son. What overcomes the world? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the victory that we have. Jesus finishes these statements about the hard way by saying that few find it. And why do so few find it? 
I think a better question to ask is, why do so many follow the wide path, the easy path? Jesus gives the answer to that in Matthew seven eleven when he says that we are evil. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, our fallen nature hates the light, as we heard earlier, and refuses to come to the light because our works are evil. It's easier to go down the easy path, not so much because the hard path is hard, but because we hate the hard path and we love the easy path. Which is why we need a new heart. It's why we need a new spirit to go down the right path. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us when we put our faith in him. When we trust in Christ alone, when we have faith in Christ alone, when we seek God's glory alone, this is the entrance to the path. And it is a good path. It is one that we can rejoice in because God is good. John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating way of telling a story about the path to eternity, the path to heaven. Um, anyways, in, in his story, the main character, Christian, and his companion, Hopeful, have been on a journey to the celestial city. They've been traveling for quite a while on a hard path, and their feet are tender, and they're discouraged because of the trials that they've faced. And along this way, they come across a meadow that lies on the left of the road, which so happens to be called Bypath Meadow. It appears to run parallel to the road that they're supposed to be on, a road that they were warned very sternly to stay on. But they saw a fellow up ahead on the road, and they find out that this man uh, is following on this path that looks way easier than the path that they're on. The man ahead of them, his name was Vain Confidence. And he declared most confidently that he was on his way to the celestial city. This convinced Christian and Hopeful to follow along behind Vain Confidence on this easier path. But shortly afterward, they hear Vain Confidence fall into a pit and be dashed in pieces. At this point, Christian and Hopeful realize they are far off the way and lost. And Bunyan's point in this is to show us just how easy it is to get off the right path, to wander off into our own way, and how dangerous it is. So what are the implications of this? What are the implications of having a narrow gate and a narrow path to follow? Well, first, we need to repent every day. Every day is a life of repentance. Trusting that Jesus saves us, Jesus alone. We need to remind ourselves of that truth, that the Jesus is our exclusive way of salvation and continually turn to him, trusting him, that he is the one who receives us when we come to him. Trusting also that the path that he's put us on, even though it's hard, is the best path for us, no matter how hard it may be. We need to remind ourselves of who God is, who is goodness, who he is in his goodness and his kindness towards those who fear him. And we need to be reminded of the danger of sin. Ultimately, we need to be reminded of the danger of turning away from Christ. So since Christ alone is our salvation, we need to exercise saving wisdom by trusting in the exclusive salvation we have in Christ alone. And second, we exercise saving wisdom by watching out for false prophets. We exercise saving wisdom by looking out for false prophets. One of the reasons the way to life is hard, and so if you find it, is because there are false prophets 
false teachers today who lead people astray. For every genuine thing that is of value, there is a counterfeit. False prophets have been noted if we count the serpent from Genesis to Revelation. And Peter warns about them in 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. The first way that Jesus describes them in this passage is saying they are dressed in sheep's clothing. They look like Christians. They use the right vocabulary. They speak Christianese. They pray impressive prayers. They refer to the scriptures in their teaching and their preaching. They talk about salvation in Christ. In these ways and many others, they disguise themselves as God's people. But inwardly, they are dangerous and deceptive. They'll draw large crowds because they pretend to bring real grace. In reality, they're in further enslaving people to their own desires because they don't teach about the hard way. They don't teach about repentance. But Jesus says we'll recognize them by their fruits. Just like we don't expect to find fruit among weeds or heavily healthy fruit from diseased trees, we cannot expect to find good fruit in false teachers. What is the kind of fruit that gives them away? Well, one of the major characteristics of false prophets in the Old Testament was an optimism that led to no uh, caution about following God. They denied that God was the God of judgment, that all was well, and that his steadfast love and mercy was always upon them. Jeremiah says they were guilty of filling people with vain hopes, and they continually say to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Similarly, God complains in Isaiah, or no, Jeremiah, that they have healed my people, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Such talk was, as to say the least, a grave disservice to the people of God because it gave them a false sense of security. It lulled them to sleep in their sins, and it failed to warn them of the impending judgment that was coming on his people, or how to escape it. This is a major issue. False prophets give a false sense of security and peace. They would proclaim that all, all is well and that God is on their side. Peter continues his warning about false teachers by saying that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter's description of false prophets is saying that they bring in destructive heresies. Since Jesus warns about wolves disguised as sheep, these heresies are going to be quite subtle. They're not going to be the blatant ones that outright deny who Jesus is, that God alone is the way of salvation, most likely. They're not likely to say things that were condemned by the early church, such as the deity of Christ, his death and resurrection, Rather, they're going to teach things and we'll hear things such as Jesus freeing from us from all sin so that we don't have to worry about committing sin today as though now that we've been freed of sin, we are not accountable for any sin. Nothing we do anymore counts as sin. They do this and it, warn- it keeps people from being warned about the, ne- the need for perseverance, the need for endurance. Or they may say things along the lines of promising health and success if they have enough faith. This type of teaching downplays the reality of living 
lives of persecution. We are promised trials for following Jesus. Peter writes also, he says, Forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. False teachers are going to be those who create a following for their own material gain. To the disciple of Jesus, to those of us who know his word, who are surrounded by good teaching and healthy believers, these false teachers are going to be pretty easy to spot. But there's another kind of fruit that's going to take a much more patience, a much more time, and it's the fruit of their character. Peter addresses this as well when he speaks of them and the result of their immorality. He says in chapter 2, verse 2 of Second Peter, many will follow their sensuality. They're going to have sensual ways that, that don't take sin seriously. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The high demand of Jesus' moral teaching in Matthew 5 are relaxed, which Jesus warns against. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There will be a lack of teaching on the pursuit of holiness because they have not their own pursuit of holiness. They lessen the threat of hell, resulting in a lack of repentance from the people. But their character will not be as obvious. It is only over time that we'll see it. A pastor or a preacher who hides behind a microphone or only stands behind a pulpit and is not in people's lives are going to be the types of pastors that you never know who they really are. You'll never know if they're faithful to their wife and family. You'll never know if they're sober-minded and self-controlled, if they're quick-tempered and arrogant, if they're a drunkard. It will not be plain to a congregation if they don't know him. And this kind of bad fruit is easy to hide when a pastor or an elder is secluded from the body. And even if they aren't, it takes time. Rather than hunger and thirst for righteousness, these false teachers have eyes full of adultery, are insatiable for sin, and they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Part of the problem with these pastors, these false teachers, is that they will teach some truth, but it will always be mixed with error. They will always be mixed with things the congregation, an unhealthy congregation, wants to hear. Second Timothy 4.3 Paul warns, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we see this today. There are churches in every place that their main goal is to make people feel good about themselves rather than be awed at the glory of Christ. We see this in churches that promote political or social issues rather than unity of spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. The presence of false teachers in churches is a certain reality. In a very, very recent survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center, they found that 37% of pastors that claim to be evangelical, evangelical is a term that denotes a reliance on the Bible, an affirmation of the gospel, 37% say that saving faith or having faith in general is more important than in what or more specifically whom one has faith. 37% of evangelical pastors said this. They also found that 39% of evangelical pastors said that there is no absolute moral truth 
and that each individual must determine their own truth. These pastors are false teachers, and they are escorting people straight down the wide and easy path that leads to destruction because they deny the exclusivity of Christ and they deny that a life that follows Christ is a life that needs repentance. These are wolves among the sheep, and they call themselves pastors. We need to be on guard against them. We need to judge righteously. We need to pay attention to character and teaching. We need to look for lawless teaching and living. We need to look for those who love the world through their materialistic pursuits. Some of their messages include living your best life now, love wins, or even a universalism that says all are going to be safe in the Father's hands. And it's my suspicion that false teachers gain such a following because we are so quick to listen to them. By Christians and non-Christians, they draw a crowd because they have a dynamic personality and they have impressive speaking or teaching skills. If you're in a healthy church, you're less likely to follow one of these. I would biasly say that I believe that you're in a healthy church and that you are going to have discernment to spot them. But we all have sin in our hearts and we're all susceptible to what that means and what that will lead us to. So we need to be careful listeners and careful examiners of our own heart. We have access to countless online sermons and teachings and books that can lead us astray, so we need to be careful. So whether you're content to learn from your own pastors or if you make use of other resources, you need to be careful. You need to be looking for teachers that have good character rather than great dynamism. And we also need to be mindful of not taking this warning too far and turn into heresy hunters. Uh, We need to not be the kind of fruit inspectors that point out every imperfection and flaw that we see in a pastor or in the way he said something. But we must beware. We must beware because there are wolves who are dressed like sheep. So we need to exercise a righteous judgment. We need to exercise that righteous judgment patiently. Those that are false teachers will be known by their fruits. So we exercise the saving wisdom by trusting in the exclusivity of Christ. We exercise saving wisdom by avoiding false teachers. And lastly, we exercise saving faith by having a faith that works. A saving faith is a faith that works. The main point of verses 21 to 23 is that a mere confession with the mouth is not a saving faith. Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to him will enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven. Luke's version is similar. In Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Some of the false teachers of our own day will tell you that the will of the Father is that you only believe in the Son. They often cite John 6.29. Here in John's Gospel, when the people ask Jesus what they must be doing to do the works of God that endures to eternal life, Jesus answers them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And this is true. We are to believe in the one that the Father has sent. As I pointed out in the beginning, this is indisputable. We have, an ex- have to have an exclusive faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone is the narrow gate. But Jesus is carrying along the same theme here that he picked up with the path. 
Faith is the entrance to the path, and that path is what Jesus outlined in the sermon all before about what that greater righteousness is. The two go together. Exclusive faith in Christ that leads to our justification, to a life that leads to worked-out righteousness. This is why we can read Romans 10.9 that says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then read later on in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of the mercy of Because of the mercy that God has shown to you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We can read these texts and not have conflict because the powerful grace of God that saves us from condemnation is the same grace that helps us to do, to will, and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says succinctly in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God your sanctification. To do the will of God is to believe in Jesus. And through that faith in Jesus, we work out a greater righteousness that the disciples of Jesus must have in active obedience to our Lord's commands by putting sin to death and living righteously. So when we come to verse 22 in our passage, in which there are some who are doing many works in Jesus' name, he says he confesses that he does not know them. The way that this is presented is that these mighty works are not done for Jesus' glory, but for their own. And this is the kind of work that Jesus warns about in the first half of chapter 6, similar to those who practice their righteousness in order to be seen by others. Those who do such things seek their own glory, and they will be pronounced by the Lord. Jesus will confess to them that he never knew them, that they're workers of lawlessness. They boast in their works They boast in works of the Spirit, in a sense, but they're not producing the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus isn't alone on this. James picks up on this theme. James 2.14 asks a rhetorical question, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He points out the foolishness of believing that a mere profession is sufficient. A faith that is not accompanied by works, such as helping someone in need in James's context, is not good for anything. So he draws the conclusion in verse 17. He says, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And just as case his readers don't get the point, he continues in verses 18 to 26. In 219, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. He affirms that they have an orthodox faith. They speak the truth. But that is not enough. He continues that even demons believe this and they shudder. James points out that Abraham was justified by his faith, but that James's, James's account of this says that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, but his faith was completed by his works. Abraham entered into the narrow gate by faith and then faced the hard path when he went to offer up Isaac, his son. I grew up going to a a Roman Catholic church, and I would say I was a a nominal believer at best, even in Catholicism. Um, And if you don't know what nominal means, it just means by by name only. I identified myself as a Catholic. I did have enough exposure to the Bible to understand that God exists, he was creator, that Jesus was sent to pay for sin. And if somebody asked me if I was a Christian or if I was someone who believed in God, I would have said, well, yeah, I believe in God. 
But that is where it ended for me. Around the time that I was 26, this passage, verses 21 to 23, was instrumental in my salvation because I was one who did say that Jesus was a Lord, that he was God. I believed that he was the Son of God who died on the cross, but it did not do anything with how I lived. I was living on the wide and easy way. I was producing bad fruit, and like vain confidence, I thought for sure that I was on my way to heaven. But I was lost, and I didn't know it. But God used this passage in his love, in his mercy, to open my eyes to the reality that Jesus is Lord, to show me that I was living with myself as Lord. And he was willing to to call me to have faith in him so that I would be his child, to give me new life. This passage looks like a warning. All we see is, don't do this, right? Don't go the wrong path. Watch out for false prophets. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But these passages that come in the appearance of a warning are great passages of grace. They're so full of grace because, just like the song Amazing Grace teaches, grace taught my heart to fear, By grace, my fears are relieved. The Lord Jesus is a gracious and loving Lord. But he is Lord. He is a Lord that we are called to follow. If this is anything like where you're at, I pray that you would hear the word that Christ has. Ask yourself if What you believe really defines who you are. And if you find that your profession does not lead much further than your lips, I urge you to turn to Christ this moment with him as your Lord, and he is ready to make you a child of God. This section specifically calls for a deep examination and honest evaluation of your faith. So ask yourself, ask your friends, ask your family, Ask your husband or wife, anyone close to you, if the faith you proclaim is a faith that works. Is it a faith that produces righteousness and and repentance that flees from sin? Related to this, ask yourself, do you recognize Jesus as the one who has authority over every element of your life? Do you seek to put sin to death because it will impress others or make you feel better because it's the sin that Jesus died for? Do you seek to grow in godliness for the same reason? Do you seek your glory or do you seek his? Jesus comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount by telling us that saving wisdom is a wisdom that trusts in the exclusive nature of Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's a wisdom that tells us that we need to watch out for false teachers who will tell us that repentance is not necessary, who will tell us that faith in Christ alone is not necessary. Saving wisdom is a wisdom that teaches us that our faith that saves alone is a faith that leads us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And since Christ alone is our salvation, we must exercise saving wisdom by following him. So we come back to where we started. 
Jesus presents us with two paths to follow, warning us of the consequences of false teachers and a false profession. Jesus presents us with the way of wisdom and folly. The way of wisdom will rely on the rock. It will build their house on the rock, and they will be saved. But the way of the fool builds their house on the sand, and they have no foundation. They will be destroyed. The end of Jesus' message is clear. There are two ways to live. Two ways to respond to Jesus. Hear and do and live, or hear and do not do, face destruction. This whole Sermon on the Mount, the whole of Matthew, the whole of Scripture is an invitation to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus' whole sermon is showing you what it looks like to be his disciple. And he's presenting you his own version of two ways to live. Will you be king over your own life, or will you have Jesus, a loving and good Savior, be your king? Will you hear his words and do them? That's the question for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise because you are our creator, you are our sustainer, you give us life We have turned away in many ways to serve the created things of this world, to serve ourselves for our own glory, and you have shown us the way of life. You have shown us the way of repentance. You have shown us that you are full of steadfast love and merciful, forgiving transgression and iniquity and sin. And you have shown that even though you will not leave sin unpunished, you punished the sins of us on the cross. So I pray, Father, that you would help us love you for this. Love you in such a way that we have a faith that is obedient to you. We thank you for your word and how you warn us with grace so that we would see and learn to fear you and have our fears relieved in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We turn now to a time for the Lord's Supper. We celebrate this every week. If you haven't been here with us before, uh, every week we we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is a manner of, of proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It is a manner of proclaiming the gospel. And it is for believers in Jesus Christ. This is not something that Uh, unbelievers should participate in because it is a symbol of the covenant that he makes with his people. It is also for people who have made a public profession of faith, a public profession that we see happening through baptism. And it is also for believers who are living in unity with one another, who are living in a a life of of repentance towards one another, who are confessing sins to one another and, and seeking reconciliation with one another. So if you are not living in repentance, if you are not living in peace with brothers and sisters in Christ, then I would urge you to hold back and seek that reconciliation either with God or, or with one another. And if, if you feel burdened by your sin or if you're pursuing peace with others in this congregation or other people in your life who are believers, now is a time to take the meal if you're pursuing those things, if you recognize that the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ was given for you,
for your salvation. Come on, go ahead and bring the elements forward. So as the elements are passed, go ahead. Go ahead and take this time to pray. Um, take this time to, to recognize your own failings and God's mercy that is displayed in the things that you will be holding in your hands. It can be easy for us to focus on our works in our relationship to God, especially as we read passages like what we covered this morning and the other commands that are in Scripture. And we do, when we do well, we sometimes think that we're pleasing God. More often, though, we sin, we fail, we think that God is disappointed. And while it is important to live lives that are obedient in the faith, it must always and separately be, be tied to the truth, the trust that we are justified, that we are made clean through our faith in Christ alone. That's what these symbols represent. The bread was given by Jesus during his last supper as a picture of his own body. It was delivered up to death for our sin, broken for us. Let's take it together. After he had given the bread, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take this together. Father, again, we give you thanks for giving us a continual reminder that you and you alone are our salvation. You are our rock. You've cleansed us with your blood and destroyed the power of sin in your body by your crucifixion. We give you thanks. We give you praise for your glory. Amen.